Hello, everybody. <laughs> it sure is good to see you all here today. Dahlia has put in chat the uh, sidecar sidekick link tree. It sounds like they're going to be playing some Among Us. Well, playing games over there. I, I know Among Us is a headliner. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, Dahlia's Darkroom, that's kind of a, that's a sidecar adjacent Discord. Good fun over there. Good fun to be had, even though I don't have time. I don't have any time. I literally, so, for a few months I was playing, like, a lot of Late Night Warzone. Um, that was most of it, honestly. Uh, I would duck back into a few other games as well, but I'm not kidding. Basically, since I started the after... Um, if I've got free time, it is dedicated pretty much to editing. I've been spending time writing, uh, scripts for this new podcast project, which I'm, I'm, I decided for this one, I want to at least try the workflow of, instead of doing what I do here, which is to kind of show up live and then edit it down, sort of cut it back into something decent. I want to try with this project, write a script for it. And so kind of front load all the decision making and all of the sort of continuity and such, trying to kind of front load that write a script for it, and then record that. And I've recorded with scripts before. If it were, if this were just an audiobook, if that's what we were going for here, these streams would be very, very easy to edit. The turnaround time on these would be like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. But yeah, it's a little bit different working in this workflow, but it's something I wanted to practice. It's something that I think would be good, and it's something that is going to go up, up on Patreon first. Uh, much like the behind-the-scenes things that I've been making, I've got two more of those uh, in my edit bay already. And then um, I have some plans, which frankly, I think it might be about time to announce. What are y'all doing the last week of September? I realize it's a little ways out, but I've had an idea cooking for a little while here. Basically, uh, I've already asked for the time off of work. What I'd like to do is with the very last week of September, um, I want y'all to get ready for something I'm calling book fair. <laughs> I'm going to go Sunday through Saturday. Um, so that is the 26th through October 2nd. That week is going to be book fair. I'm going to detail this more in a public post over on the Patreon. The plan is a week dedicated to streaming. Like I said, I asked off of work. I'm going to be doing extra streams. I'm going to be doing longer streams. I'm going to be doing things that we've never seen here before. Uh, I would love to do like at least one crafting stream. I would love to do, well, frankly, all sorts of stuff. But that week is going to be book fair. Last week of September. Book fair, get ready for it, okay? It's going to be a big week, and it's going to be a party, all right? And the plan is, um, the, the reason this all ties together, I think my plan is to have these once, maybe twice a year. Right now, I don't know, but it will be one of these two. Once or twice a year, book fair. And during book fair, I'm going to take all of the things that have been Patreon only and release them to the public. I've talked about this on Patreon before. I want to make things sort of as a partner with my patrons um, that will eventually be available to the public. There may be a very, very narrow range of things that are sort of like exclusively patrons only. That is all hypothetical. Right now, all of the things that I'm doing will eventually be released to the public and book fair is when I'm going to do that. Um, so essentially, I'm going to try and spend the next few months here until September building up some of these things. And at the end of September, all of that is going to be released to the public and then we'll start anew and then the next time I'll be releasing all that Patreon stuff is going to be the next book fair. Uh, it's going to be a huge week with uh, a ton of fun essentially. That's the plan. Wildfire Spirit says, Sam, are you putting Harry back on YouTube? It is already back up. Um, if you want to go check the YouTube channel, everything should be back in place. If I do something big and drastic like that, I'm going to be making announcements about it. Um, I, made I made full announcements about it on Discord 
Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Um, but really, folks, you know, there's a possibility just YouTube is a tumultuous place. There's a possibility that something could happen to the YouTube very suddenly and it would disappear. Now, I've got, I've got you know, storage for all of that. I've got those episodes saved. But if it does disappear and you're not on Discord, you may be well out of luck. Uh, I will disappear and you will never find me again. Um, so you definitely want to be on Discord. Uh, at the very least, make sure you're keeping an eye on the Instagram because I will be announcing things like this over there. And with that said, uh, you can expect a book fair announcement pretty soon here. Uh, I will probably even do like a book fair trailer. Uh, I would love to try new shows. I would love to do pilots. I think, I mean, absolutely, we're going to dedicate at least one spooky streams night because we're getting into October. A spooky stream section where I read some, I don't know, like probably Edgar Allan Poe and then maybe like some other stuff as well. Maybe I'll play some very, very spooky games. I think this is going to be a lot of fun and I'm very much looking forward to it. So, book fair last week of September. So if you want to learn more about that and you would like to, uh, if you would like to discuss it in the general channels, or excuse me, in the lobby channels over in the Discord, there's the link. You can find that in the YouTube description as well. Now we got a lot to do today, everybody. Uh, and Orly, I am very happy that you are a fan. I'm very happy you're a fan of the Discord. I certainly am a fan of the Discord. It's great to be able to go over there and hang out with y'all every week. And uh, especially after some of the streams, like y'all, we had the craziest episode of the after this week the after was wild that's a wednesday stream and we are halfway through our eight-part mini-series we're, we're already halfway done you can find those episodes here on twitch for two weeks after it airs but also you can find those over on youtube or in the discord in the playlists channel uh, by the way i hope that playlists channel has been useful to y'all the youtube playlist system is pretty clunky and so i wanted to make a spot where y'all could actually find those playlists much more easily okay you know what percy jackson last week on flying sidecar this voice actor's venture through some stories we all love we are back in the world we're back in the world of myth um and percy has had a relatively easy school year no attacks that's a little strange isn't it well we find out why um, turns out his new friend Tyson might well be involved, and we learn all of this over the course of the, uh, Percy's last day at school. Percy goes to school, meets up with his best, his new friend Tyson, uh, who's here at school, and they end up in a dodgeball match with, turns out, they're cannibals. Um, they are the Lestragonians, these giant cannibals, literally giants, who uh, have shown up to school and they seem to kind of have it out for Percy. Um, in spite of this, Percy, with Tyson's help and suddenly, with Annabeth's help as well, they do indeed manage to escape. They end up in a taxi cab driven by the Grey Sisters. Um, uh, oh shoot, who are they? Anger, Tempest, and... What was the third one? Anyone, help me out. Anger, Tempest, and... Wasp. Anger, Tempest, and Wasp. That is quite the, like, they sound like hitmen, don't they? They sound like assassins. But no, they're three old ladies who drive a taxi and share one tooth and one eye between all three of them. Uh, they barely make it to camp on time. And when I say that, what I mean is Annabeth has been having some dreams here about camp being in trouble. Percy has been having dreams about... Grover being in trouble. And when they arrive here at camp, they discover, well, at the very least, Annabeth's dreams are come true. The camp is under attack. And that 
is where we're at. Vane says, "Oops, what did I think? Hunger. Um, I mean, it would be appropriate, right? Some of these, some of these folks are have got some wild names going on, don't they? Um, let's see, let's see. Anything y'all want to? Anything y'all think we got to get on the table before we go into it today? That's my question. <laughs> is y'all talking about Christmas Carol? Oof, so scary. Um, yeah, that that uh, that stream, the after, that was a fun one yesterday." Um, we had our guest bees. Um, I think y'all are really going to enjoy bees as, uh, I hope you enjoyed actor clown. I thought both of them were fantastic. Actor clown was great at sort of playing the, uh, playing kind of a conservative card there and, um, uh, sort of like going into the story, not trying to expose too much in excellent way to lead us into a great story about the apocalypse and what exactly happened two weeks prior to the events of the story. Um, and then we had uh, bees come in and use some of those seeds planted, and really the whole thing went way off the rails. Uh, both of our main characters are in a lot of trouble, and we will have to see what that means when our third guest shows up next week. So come hang out on Wednesdays, gang. It's a lot of fun over there. Stationary Fork, happy birthday to you. All right, all right, Stationary Fork, who's singing you happy birthday? What character is singing you happy birthday today? You know, we don't always get we don't always get uh, a sidecar a side karaoke, but it does sound like we got a birthday up in the mix. So, which one of our which one of our illustrious goons is going to be singing you per happy birthday today? Otherwise, it's just going to be me. Um, let's see who would who would I choose if it were just me? Um, probably probably Madame Pomfrey. Andre the Giant? Oh, oh. <laughs> Andre the Giant isn't good, though. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, stationary fork. Happy birthday to you. Anybody want a peanut? <laughs> Anybody want some cake? Y'all, it's great to have you all here. I hope you have a wonderful week, uh, and I hope you enjoy our three, count them three, that's right, our three chapters for today. Let's read. Percy Jackson and the Olympians. The Sea of Monsters, Chapter 4. Tyson plays with fire. Mythologically speaking, if there's anything I hate worse than trios of old ladies, it's bulls. Last summer, I fought the Minotaur on top of Half-Blood Hill. This time, I saw up there, it was even worse. Two bulls, and not just regular bulls, bronze ones, the size of elephants. And even that wasn't bad enough. Naturally, they had to breathe fire, too. As soon as we exited the taxi, the Gray Sisters peeled out, headed back to New York where life was safer. They didn't even wait for their extra three drachma payment. They just left us on the side of the road. Annabeth with nothing but her backpack and knife, Tyson and me still in our burned-up, tie-dyed gym clothes. Oh, man, said Annabeth, looking at the battle raging on the hill. What worried me most weren't the bulls themselves, or the ten heroes in full battle armor who were getting their bronze-plated booties whooped. 
What worried me was that the bulls were raging all over the hill, even around the backside of the pine tree. That shouldn't have been possible. The camp's magic boundaries wouldn't allow monsters past Talia's tree, but the bulls were roving past it anyway. One of the heroes shouted, Border Patrol to me! A girl's voice, gruff and familiar. Border Patrol, I thought. The camp didn't have a Border Patrol. It's Clarice, Annabeth said. Come on, we have to help her. Normally, rushing to Clarice's aid would have been high on my to-do list. Not really. She was one of the biggest bullies at camp. The first time we'd met, she tried to introduce my head to a toilet. She was also a daughter of Ares, and I had had a very serious disagreement with her father last summer. So now the war god and all of his children basically hated my guts. Still, she was in trouble. Her fellow warriors were scattering, running in panic as the bulls charged. The grass was burning in huge swaths around the pine tree. One hero screamed and waved his arms as he ran in circles, the horsehair plume on his helmet blazing like a fiery mohawk. Clarice's own armor was charred. She was fighting with a broken spear shaft, the other end embedded uselessly in the metal joint of one bull's shoulder. I uncapped my ballpoint pen. It shimmered growing longer and heavier until I held the bronze sword Anacrusmos in my hands. Tyson, stay here. I don't want you taking any more chances. No, Annabeth said. We need him. I stared at her. He's, he's mortal. He got lucky with the dodgeballs, but he can't... Percy, do you know what those are up there? The Colchis Bulls made by Hephaestus himself. We can't fight them without Medea's sunscreen SPF 50,000. We'll be burned to a crisp. Medea's what? Annabeth rummaged through her backpack and cursed. I had a jar of tropical coconut scent sitting on my nightstand at home. Why didn't I bring it? I'd learned a long time ago not to question Annabeth too much. It just made me more confused. Look, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm not just going to let Tyson get fried. Percy? Tyson? You stay back. I raised my sword. I'm going in. Tyson tried to protest, but I was already running up the hill toward Clarice, who was yelling at her patrol, trying to get them into phalanx formation. It was a good idea. The few who were listening lined up shoulder to shoulder, locking their shields to form an oxhide and bronze wall, their spears bristling over the top like porcupine quills. Unfortunately, Clarice could only muster six campers. The other four were still running around with their helmets on fire. Annabeth ran toward them, trying to help. She taunted one of the bulls into chasing her and then turned invisible, completely confusing the monster. The other bull charged Clarice's line. I was halfway up the hill, not close enough to help. Clarice hadn't even seen me yet. The bull moved deadly fast for something so big. Its metal hide gleamed in the sun. It had fist-sized rubies for eyes and horns of polished silver. When it opened its hinged mouth, a column of white-hot flame blasted out. Hold the line! Clarice ordered her warriors. Whatever else you could say about Clarice, she was brave. She was a big girl with cruel eyes like her father's. She looked like she was born to wear Greek battle armor, but I didn't see how she could even stand against that bull's charge. Unfortunately, at that moment, the other bull lost interest in finding Annabeth. 
It turned, wheeling around behind Clarice on her unprotected side. Behind you! I yelled. Look out! I shouldn't have said anything. All I did was startle her. Bull number one crashed into her shield and the phalanx broke. Clarice was flying backward and landed in a smoldering pile of grass. The bull charged past her, but not before blasting the other heroes with its fiery breath. Their shields melted right off their arms. They dropped their weapons and ran as bull number two closed in on Clarice for the kill. I lunged forward and grabbed Clarice by the straps of the armor. I dragged her out of the way just as bull number two freight trained past. I gave it a good swipe with Riptide and cut a huge gash in its flank, but the monster just creaked and groaned and kept going. It hadn't touched me, but I could feel the heat of its metal on skin. Its body temperature could have microwaved a frozen burrito. You let me go! Clarice pummeled my hand. Percy, curse you! I dropped her into a heap next to the pine tree and we turned to face the bulls. We were on the inside slope of the hill now, the valley of Camp Half-Blood directly below us, the cabins, the training facilities, the big house... All of it at risk if these bulls got past us. Annabeth shouted orders to the other heroes, telling them to spread out and keep the bulls distracted. Bull number one ran in a wide arc, making its way back toward me. As it passed the middle of the hill, where the invisible boundary line should have kept it out, it slowed down a little, as though it were struggling against a strong wind, but then it broke through and kept coming. Bull number two turned to face me, fire spluttering from a gash I'd cut in its side. I couldn't tell if it felt any pain, but its ruby eyes seemed to glare at me like I'd just made things personal. I couldn't fight both bulls at the same time. I'd have to take down bull number two first, cut off its head before bull number one charged back into range. My arms already felt tired. I realized how long it had been since I'd worked out with Riptide, how out of practice I was. I lunged, but bull number two blew flames back at me. I rolled aside as the air turned to pure heat. All the oxygen was sucked out of my lungs. My foot caught on something, a tree root maybe, and pain shot up my ankle. Still, I managed to slash with my sword and lop off part of the monster's snout. It galloped away, wild and disoriented. But before I could feel too good about it, I tried to stand and felt my left leg buckle underneath me. My ankle was sprained, maybe broken. Bull number one charged straight toward me. No way I could crawl out of its path. Annabeth shouted, Tyson, help him! Somewhere near, toward the crest of the hill, Tyson wailed, Can't get through? I, Annabeth Chase, give you permission to enter camp. Thunder shook the hillside. Suddenly, Tyson was there, barreling toward me, yelling, Percy needs help! Before I could tell him no, he dove between me and the bull just as it unleashed a nuclear firestorm. Tyson! I yelled. The blast swirled around him like a red tornado. I could only just see the back silhouette of his body. I knew with horrible certainty that my friend had just been turned into a column of ashes. But when the fire died, Tyson was still standing there, completely unharmed. 
Not even his grungy clothes were scorched. The bull must have been as surprised as I was, because before it could unleash a second blast, Tyson balled his fists and slammed them into the bull's face. Bad cow! Mm. His fists made a crater where the bronze bull's snout used to be. Two small columns of flame shot out of its ears. Tyson hit it again, and the bull crumpled under his hands like aluminum foil. The bull's face now looked like a sock puppet pulled inside out. Down, Tyson yelled. The bull staggered and fell on its back. Its legs moved feebly in the air, steam coming out of its ruined head in odd places. Annabeth ran over to check on me. My ankle felt like it was filled with acid, but she gave me some Olympian nectar to drink from her canteen, and I immediately started to feel better. It was a burning smell I learned later was me. The hair in my arms had been completely singed off. The other bull? I asked. Annabeth pointed down the hill. Clarice had taken care of bad cow number two. She'd impaled it through the back leg with a celestial bronze spear. Now the snout half gone and a huge gash in its side, it was trying to run in slow motion, going in circles in some kind of merry-go-round. Clarice pulled off her helmet and marched towards us. A strand of her stringy brown hair was smoldering, but she didn't seem to notice. You ruined everything, she yelled at me. I had it under control. I was too stunned to answer. Annabeth grumbled. Good to see you too, Clarice. Ah! Clarice screamed. Don't you ever, ever try saving me again. Clarice, Annabeth said. We've got wounded campers. That sobered her up. Even Clarice cared about the soldiers under her command. I'll be back, she growled, then trudged off to assess the damage. I stared at Tyson. You... You didn't die. Tyson looked down like he was embarrassed. I'm... I'm sorry. Came to help. Disobeyed you. Mm. Mm. My fault, Annabeth said. I had no choice. I had to let Tyson across the boundary line to save you. Otherwise, you would have died. Let him across the boundary line, I asked. But, Percy, she said. Have you ever looked at Tyson closely? I mean, in the face. Ignore the mist and really look at him. The mist makes humans see only what their brains can process. I knew it could fool demigods too, but... I looked Tyson in the face. It wasn't easy. I'd always had trouble looking directly at him, though I'd never quite understood why. I thought it was just because he always had peanut butter between his crooked teeth. I forced myself to focus at his big lumpy nose and then a little higher at his eyes. Nope. Not eyes. One eye. One large calf brown eye right in the middle of his forehead with thick lashes and big tears trickling down his cheeks on either side. Tyson? I stammered. You're, you're, you're a uh, cyclops. Annabeth offered. 
A baby, by the look of him. Probably why he couldn't get past the boundary line as easily as the bulls. Tyson's one of the homeless orphans. One of the what? They're in almost all the big cities, Annabeth said distastefully. They're mistakes, Percy. Children of nature spirits and gods. Well, one god in particular, usually. And they don't always come out right. No one wants them. They get tossed aside. They grow up wild in the streets. I don't know how this one found you, but he obviously likes you. We should take him to Chiron and let him decide what to do. But in the fire, how... He's a cyclops. Annabeth paused as if she were remembering something unpleasant. They work the forges of the gods. They would have to be immune to fire. That's what I was trying to tell you. I was completely shocked. How had I never realized what Tyson was? But I didn't have much time to think about it just then. The whole side of the hill was burning. Wounded heroes needed attention. And there were still two banged-up bronze bowls to dispose of, which I didn't figure would fit into our normal recycling bins. Clarice came over and wiped the soot off of her forehead. Jackson, if you can stand, get up. We need you to carry the wounded back to the big house. Let Tantalus know what's happened. Tantalus? I asked. The activities director, Clarice said impatiently. Chiron is the activities director. And where's Argus? He's had a security. He should be here. Clarice made a sour face. Argus got fired. He too have been gone for too long. Things have changed. But, but, Chiron, he's, he's trained kids to fight monsters for over 3,000 years. He can't just be gone. What happened? That happened. Clarice snapped. She pointed to Talia's tree. Every camper knew the story behind the tree. Six years ago, Grover, Annabeth, and two other demigods named Talia and Luke had come to Camp Half-Blood, traced by an army of monsters. When they got cornered on top of this hill, Talia, a daughter of Zeus, had made her last stand here to give her friends time to reach safety. As she was dying, her father, Zeus, took pity on her and changed her into a pine tree. Her spirit had reinforced the magic borders of the camp, protecting it from monsters. The pine had been here ever since, strong and healthy. But now, its needles were yellow. A huge pile of dead ones littered the base of the tree. In the center of the trunk, three feet from the ground, was a puncture mark the size of a bullet hole, oozing green sap. A sliver of ice ran through my chest. Now I understood why the camp was in danger. The magical borders were failing because Talia's tree was dying. Someone had poisoned it. And that is it for chapter one, y'all. Our first chapter for the evening, our first of three chapters, because we had some short ones in there. I figured, you know what? I'll push it again. Why not? 
Why not give it another shot? <laughs> what in the blazes indeed, Hogwarts Hippie? And before I go in too much further, I think it would be appropriate for me to leave you all with a chatterbreak question. I'm not going to take a full break right here. I think we're going to roll on into our next chapter, but I do have some things I would like to talk about before we do so. We are here with Percy at his first time back in camp um, for about a year, right? Well, for the for the the... For the school year, I should say. Last time he was here was at the end of last summer. Percy Jackson, for the first time in about nine months, is back here at camp and things are not going well. We are... We're coming into this kind of fresh, right? In our last book, I think we had a lot of opportunities to kind of guess ahead, don't we? Jade says, are there rocks ahead? Oh, I think it's going to get very rocky ahead, although I'm guessing you were going for some sort of pun that is currently escaping me, Jade. Um, we had a lot of hints, a lot of hints in that last book about what was going on. I think a lot of folks could see kind of the um, uh, the like Kronos connection, I guess we might be able to call it. Uh, at the very least, they were able to spot the uh, the Ares issue before it actually was explicitly come up now i mean we know there's there is there's the big enemy of of camp half-blood that was actually in the camp right it was luke but luke is gone how did this tree get poisoned so there's our chatterbait question how did the tree get poisoned who is responsible and uh, i think you know because it is indeed the title of the book we can probably keep in mind how does this all tie into the sea of monsters? These are our questions. So, with all that said, I think we're probably just going to roll straight on through. Actually, you know what? First, I'm going to chug some water um, because I'm a little dehydrated. I can feel it right now. My throat's throat's a little dry. And uh, I've got a, well, I've got a rather dry voice to introduce to you all for the very first time in this coming chapter. So, what do you all think? Rollet says, I bet Luke poisoned the tree. Interesting. So maybe before he headed out, or is he sneaking back in? What do you think, Rollet? Sandra says, is the Sea of Monsters a Sea of Monsters? Maybe the... Oh, maybe like Bermuda Triangle? Okay, so you think there's like an actual sea, an actual sort of body of water involved. Um, oh, Jade. Well, it's been great to have you in here so far. Uh, I hope you have a good time bowling. Um, get, a, get good strikes, I guess. Go on strike. That's the, that's the bowling term, isn't it? Um, Luke says, Luke Stoltzfus in chat says, I did no such thing. Yeah, it's a wild one to, to have a villain named after you, isn't it? Um, uh, that's why the, infl the infamous uh, Samuel Clements is uh, such, a, such a hard one for me. You know, when everyone's talking about the, uh, let's see, I think he fought the Power Rangers, Samuel Clements did. That's one for all of you with, uh, I'm not going to call it, you know, deep, deep literary knowledge, but it's a little bit off the wall. And no, it didn't actually. Look, look, look. Don't worry about it. Um, Rose says, I think Sea of Monsters evokes uh, the Iliad slash the Odyssey. Luke says, honestly, I wouldn't write a Luke hero. There have definitely been Luke heroes. Um, I think Skywalker comes to mind. <laughs> right? I, I mean, there have been Luke heroes. Um, yeah, Unicorn Slayer. We're trying to avoid spoilers. This is for um, this is just for I guess general discussion. But I recognize it can be tough to ask what do we think is coming up without getting into spoiler territories. 
Uh, yeah, Luke, remember that one time that uh, Samuel Clemens turned into a kaiju and they, the the, uh, <laughs> the Power Rangers had to fight him? There we go. Anyway, y'all, I think it's about time. Let's get into our next chapter. That's right, we're moving quick tonight. Hippie says, I feel like Luke had a special connection to her and blamed himself for what happened to her. Okay, interesting. That's an interesting theory. So maybe Luke wouldn't have done it even if he had the opportunity. Um, Rollet says, I think it's... Uh, parting like screw you all parting gift since luke is literally trying to bring back the titans maybe uh make things really hard for the heroes to either get rid of them or distract them uh get rid of their safe haven so they can weaken them and they won't be super helpful to the gods yeah because certainly we have seen how the these demigods are very important as sort of um uh, agents of the gods right they are the people who if something needs doing in the world it's it's less often that you know, Poseidon or Zeus will just reach down and do it themselves. It seems like a lot of the doing that gets done on the planet, it gets done by demigods or, you know, other servants of the gods. One final one. Vance's Lies says, Luke feels like he made the wrong call, but isn't a mustache twirling villain. Uh, he definitely thinks he was taking the road, the gods, uh, uh, taking down the gods for the right reasons. Greater good and all that. Yeah, indeed. And uh, yeah, y'all in chat, if you like games and you want to play some with some folks, go ahead and check out that uh, note that Dahlia just put in stream. Okay, next chapter. Chapter five. Y'all can see why I did three today, right? That first one was pretty short. Chapter five. I get a new cabin mate. Do you ever come home and find your room messed up? Like some helpful person, hi mom, has tried to clean it and suddenly you can't find anything. And even if nothing's missing, you just get that creepy feeling like somebody's been looking through your private stuff and dusting everything with lemon furniture polish. That's kind of the way I felt seeing Camp Half-Blood again. On the surface, things didn't look that different. The big house was still there with its blue gabled roof and its wraparound porch. The strawberry fields still baked in the sun. The same white-columned Greek buildings were scattered around the valley. The amphitheater, the combat arena, the dining pavilion overlooking Long Island Sound. Nestled between the woods and the creek were the same cabins. A crazy assortment of twelve buildings, each representing a different Olympian god. There was an air of danger now. You could tell something was wrong. Instead of playing volleyball in the sand pit, counselors and satyrs were stockpiling weapons in the tool shed. Dryads armed with bows and arrows talked nervously at the edge of the woods. The forest looked sickly. The grass in the meadow was pale yellow and fire marks on half-blood hills stood out like angry scars. Somebody had messed with my favorite place in the world, and I was not, well, a, a happy camper. As we made our way to the big house, I recognized a lot of kids from last summer. Nobody stopped to talk. Nobody said, welcome back. Some did double takes when they saw Tyson, but most just walked grimly past and carried on with their duties, running messages, toting swords to sharpen on grinding wheels, camp felt like a military school. And believe me, I know. 
I've been kicked out of a couple. None of that mattered to Tyson. He was absolutely fascinated by everything he saw. Was that? He gasped. These, um, the, the stables for the Pegasi, I said. The, the winged horses. Was that? Uh, do, mm, those are the toilets. Was that? The, the cabins for the campers. If they don't know who your Olympian parent is, then they put you in a Hermes cabin. It's a brown one over there until you're determined. And then, you know, once they, uh, once they find out who your mom and dad is, then they put you in that group. He looked at me in awe. You mm, have a cabin? Uh, number three. I pointed to a low gray building made out of sea stone. You live with friends in the cabin? No, no, just me. I didn't feel like explaining. The embarrassing truth... I was the only one who stayed in that cabin because I wasn't supposed to be alive. The big three gods, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades, had made a pact after World War II not to have any more children with mortals. We were more powerful than regular half-bloods. We were too unpredictable. When we got mad, we caused problems. Like World War II, for instance. The big three pact had only been broken twice— once when Zeus sired Talia, once when Poseidon sired me. Neither of us should have been born. Talia had gotten herself turned into a pine tree when she was twelve. Me? Well, I was doing my best not to follow her example. I had nightmares about what Poseidon might turn me into if I were ever on the verge of death. Plankton, maybe. Or a floating patch of kelp. When we got to the big house, we found Chiron in his apartment, listening to his favorite 1960s lounge music while he packed his saddlebags. I guess I should mention, Chiron is a centaur. From the waist up, he looks like a regular middle-aged guy with curly brown hair and a scraggly beard. From waist down, he's a white stallion. He can pass for human by compacting his lower half into a magic wheelchair. In fact, he's passed himself off as my Latin teacher during my sixth grade year, but most of the time. If the ceilings are high enough, he prefers hanging out in full centaur form. As soon as we saw him, Tyson froze. Mm, pony. He cried in total rapture. Chiron turned, looking offended. I beg your pardon? Annabeth ran up and hugged him. Chiron, what's happening? You're not leaving. Her voice was shaky. Chiron was like a second father to her. Chiron ruffled her hair and gave her a kindly smile. Hello, child. And Percy, my goodness, you've grown a lot over the year. I swallowed. Clarice said that you, um, that you were... Fired. Chiron's eyes glinted with dark humor. Ah, well, someone had to take the blame. Lord Zeus was most upset. The tree he'd created from the spirit of his daughter poisoned. Mr. D had to punish someone. Uh, besides himself, you mean? 
I growled. Just the thought of the camp director, Mr. D, made me angry. But this is, this is crazy, Annabeth cried. Karen, you couldn't have had anything to do with poisoning Talia's tree. Nevertheless, Chiron sighed, some in Olympus do not trust me now, under the circumstances. What circumstances? I asked. Chiron's face darkened. He stuffed a Latin d English dictionary into his saddlebag while the Frank Sinatra music oozed from his boombox. Tyson was still staring at Chiron in amazement. He whimpered like he wanted to pat Chiron's flank but was afraid to come closer. Pony. Chiron sniffed. My dear young Cyclops, I am a centaur. Chiron, I said, what about the tree? What happened? He shook his head sadly. The poison used on Talia's pine is something from the underworld, Percy. Some venom I have never before seen. It must have come from a monster quite deep in the pits of Tartarus. Okay, so then we know who's responsible. Cron Do not invoke the Titan Lord's name, Percy. Especially not here. Not now. But last summer he tried to cause a civil war in Olympus. This has to be his idea. He'd get Luke to do it, that traitor. Perhaps, Chiron said. But I fear I am being held responsible because I did not prevent it, and I cannot cure it. The tree has only a few weeks of life, unless... Unless what? Annabeth asked. Mm. No, Chiron said. A foolish idea. The whole valley is feeling the shock of the poison. The magical borders are deteriorating. The camp itself is dying. Only one source of magic would be strong enough to reverse the poison, and it was lost centuries ago. Whoa, 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 what is it? I asked. We'll go find it. Gyron closed his saddlebag. He pressed the stop button on the boombox. And he turned and rested his hand on my shoulder, looking me straight in the eyes. Percy, you must promise me that you will not act rashly. I told your mother I do not want you to come here at all this summer. It's much too dangerous. But now that you are here, stay here. Train hard, learn to fight, but do not leave. I, why? I asked. I want to do something. I, I can't just let the borders fail. The whole camp will be overrun by monsters, Chiron said. Yes, I fear so. But you must not let yourself be baited into hasty action. This could be a trap of the Titan Lord. Remember last summer. He almost took your life. It was true, but still, I wanted to help so badly. I also wanted to make Kronos pay. I mean, you'd think the Titan Lord would have learned his lesson eons ago when he was overthrown by the gods. You'd think that getting chopped into a million pieces and cast into the darkest part of the underworld 
would have given him a subtle clue that nobody wanted him around. But no, because he was immortal, he was still alive down there in Tartarus, suffering in eternal pain, hungering to return and take revenge on Olympus. He didn't act on his own, he couldn't, but he was great at twisting the minds of mortals and even gods to do his dirty work. The poisoning had to be his doing. Who else would be so low as to attack Talia's tree, the only thing left of a hero who had given her life to save her friends? Annabeth was trying hard not to cry. Chiron brushed a tear from her cheek. Stay with Percy, child, he told her. Keep him safe. The prophecy? Remember it. I... I will. Um... I said. Will this be the super dangerous prophecy that's got me in it, but the gods have forbidden you to tell me about? Nobody answered. Yep, right, I muttered. Just checking. Chiron, Annabeth said. You told me that the gods made you immortal only so long as you were needed to train heroes. If they dismiss you from the camp... Swear that you will do your best to keep Percy from danger, he insisted. Swear it upon the river Styx. I... I swear it upon the river Styx, Annabeth said. Thunder rumbled outside. Very well. Chiron said. He seemed to relax, just a little. Perhaps my name will be cleared and I shall return. Until then I go to visit my wild kingsmen in the Everglades. It's possible that they will know some cure for the poison that I may have forgotten. In any event, I will stay in exile until this matter is resolved, one way or another. Annabeth stifled a sob. Chiron patted her shoulders awkwardly. There now, child. I must entrust your safety to Mr. D and the new activities director. We must hope... Well, perhaps they won't destroy the camp quite as quickly as I fear. So who is this Tantalus guy, anyway? I demanded. Where does he get off taking your job? A conch horn blew across the valley. I hadn't realized how late it was. It was time for the campers to assemble for dinner. Go, Chiron said. You will meet him in the pavilion. I will contact your mother, Percy, and let her know that you are safe. No doubt she'll be worried by now. Just remember my warning. You are in grave danger. Do not think for a moment that the Titan Lord has forgotten you. With that, he clopped out of the apartment and down the hall. Tyson called after him. Pony, mm, don't go. I realized I had forgotten to tell Chiron about my dream of Grover. Now it was too late. The best teacher I'd ever had was gone. Maybe for good. Tyson started bawling almost as bad as Annabeth. I tried to tell them things would be okay. 
but I didn't believe it. The sun was setting behind the dining pavilion as the campers came up from their cabins. We stood in the shadow of a marble column and watched them file in. Annabeth was still pretty shaken up, but she'd promised to talk to us later. She went off to join her siblings from the Athena cabin, a dozen boys and girls with blonde hair and gray eyes like hers. Annabeth wasn't the oldest, but she'd been at camp for more summers than just about anybody. You could tell that just by looking at her camp necklace. One bead for every summer, and Annabeth had six. No one questioned her right to lead the line. Next came Clarice, leading the Ares cabin. She had one arm in a sling and a nasty-looking gash in her cheek, but otherwise, her encounter with the bronze bull didn't seem to have phased her. Someone had taped a piece of paper to her back that said, You moo, girl. But nobody in her cabin was bothering to tell her about it. After the Ares kids came the Hephaestus cabin, six guys led by Charles Beckendorf, a big 15-year-old African-American kid. He had hands the size of catcher's mitts and a face that was hard and squinty from looking into a blacksmith's forge all day. He was nice enough once you got to know him, but no one ever called him Charlie or Chuck or Charles. Most just called him Beckendorf. Rumor was he could make anything. Give him a chunk of metal and he could create razor-sharp swords or a robotic warrior or a singing birdbath for your grandmother's garden, whatever you wanted. The other cabins filed in. Demeter, Apollo, Aphrodite, Dionysus. Naiads came from the canoe lake. Dryads melted out of the trees. From the meadow came a dozen satyrs who reminded me painfully of Grover. I'd always had a soft spot for satyrs. When they were at camp, they had to do all kinds of odd jobs for Mr. D, the director, but their most important work was out in the real world. They were the camp's seekers. They went undercover into schools all over the world, looking for potential half-bloods and escorting them back to camp. That's how I had met Grover. He'd been the first to recognize I was a demigod. After the satyrs filed to dinner, the Hermes cabin brought up the rear. They were always the biggest cabin, Last summer, they had been led by Luke, the guy who had fought with Talia and Annabeth on top of Half-Blood Hill. For a while, before Poseidon had claimed me, I had lodged in the Hermes cabin. Luke had befriended me, and then tried to kill me. Now the Hermes cabin was led by Travis and Connor Stoll. They weren't twins, but they looked so much alike it didn't really matter. I could never remember which one was older. They were both tall and skinny with mops of brown hair that hung in their eyes. They wore Camp Half-Blood t-shirts, untucked over baggy shorts, and they had those elfish features all Hermes kids had. Upturned eyebrows, sarcastic smiles, a gleam in their eyes whenever they looked at you, like they were about to drop a firecracker down your shirt. I'd always thought it was funny that the God of Thieves would have kids with the last name Stoll, S-T-O-L-L, but the only time I mentioned it to Travis and Connor, they both stared at me blankly like they didn't get the joke. As soon as the last campers had filed in, I led Tyson into the middle of the pavilion. Conversations faltered. Heads turned. Uh, who invited that? Somebody at the Apollo table murmured. I glared in their direction, but I couldn't figure out who had spoken. From the head table, a familiar voice drawled, Well, well, if it's not... Peter Johnson. 
My millennium is complete. I gritted my teeth. Percy Jackson, sir? Mr. D sipped his Diet Coke. Yeah, well, all you young people say these days, whatever. He was wearing his usual leopard pattern Hawaiian shirt, walking shorts, tennis shoes with black socks. With his pudgy belly and his blotchy red face, he looked like a Las Vegas tourist who'd stayed up too late in the casinos. Behind him, a nervous-looking satyr was peeling the skins off of grapes and handing them to Mr. D one at a time. Mr. D's real name was Dionysus, the god of wine. Zeus appointed him director of Camp Half-Blood to dry out for a hundred years, a punishment for chasing some off-limits wood nymph. Next to him, where Chiron usually sat, or stood in centaur form, was someone who I had never seen before. A pale, horribly thin man in a threadbare, orange prisoner's jumpsuit. The number over his pocket read 0001. He had blue shadows under his eyes, dirty fingernails, and badly cut gray hair. Like his last haircut had been done with a weed whacker. He stared at me. His eyes made me nervous. He looked fractured, angry and frustrated and hungry all at the same time. This boy, Dionysus told him, you need to watch Poseidon's child, you know. <sighs> the prisoner said, that one. His tone made it obvious that he and Dionysus had already discussed me at length. I'm Tantalus, the prisoner said, smiling coldly. On special assignment here until, well, until my lord Dionysus decides otherwise. And you, Perseus Jackson, I do expect you to refrain from causing any more trouble. Trouble? I demanded. Dionysus snapped his fingers. A newspaper appeared on the table, the front page of today's New York Post. There was a yearbook picture from Meriwether Prep. It was hard for me to make out the headline, but I had a pretty good guess what it said. Something like, 13-year-old lunatic torches gymnasium. Yes, trouble, Tantalus said with satisfaction. It caused plenty of it last summer, I understand. I was too mad to speak. Like it was my fault the gods had almost gotten into a civil war. A satyr inched forward nervously and set a plate of barbecue in front of Tantalus. The new activities director licked his lips. He looked at his empty goblet and said, Root beer, box, special stock, 1967. The glass filled itself with foamy soda. Tantalus stretched out a hand hesitantly, as if he were afraid the goblet was hot. Uh, uh, go on then, old fellow, Dionysus said with a strange sparkle in his eyes. Uh, perhaps now it will work. Tantalus grabbed for the glass, but it scooted away before he could touch it. A few drops of root beer spilled, and Tantalus tried to dab them up with his fingers, but the drops rolled away like quicksilver before he could touch them. He growled and turned toward a plate of barbecue. 
He picked up a fork and tried to stab a piece of brisket, but the plate skittered down the table and flew off the end, straight into the coals of the brazier. Blast! Tantalus muttered. Ah, well, Dionysus said, his voice dripping with false sympathy. Uh, perhaps a few more days. I believe me, old chat, working in this camp, it's going to be torture enough. I'm sure that your old curse will fade eventually. Eventually, muttered Tantalus, staring at Dionysus's Diet Coke. Do you have any idea how dry one's throat gets after 3,000 years? Well, just, okay, hold, you're, you're that spirit from the Fields of Punishment, I said. The one who stands in the lake with the fruit tree hanging over you, but you can't eat or drink. Tantalus sneered at me. A real scholar, aren't you, boy? You must have done something really horrible when you were alive, I said, mildly impressed. What was it? Tantalus's eyes narrowed. Behind him, the satyrs were shaking their heads vigorously, trying to warn me. I'll be watching you, Percy Jackson, Tantalus said. I don't want any problems at my camp. Your camp already has problems, sir. Go, go and sit down, Johnson, Dionysus sighed. I believe that table over there was yours, the one that no one else ever wants to sit at. My face was burning, but I knew better than to talk back. Dionysus was an overgrown brat, but he was an immortal, super powerful overgrown brat. I said, Come on, Tyson. Oh, no, Tantalus said. The monster stays here. We must decide what to do with it. Him, I snapped. His name is Tyson. The new activities director raised an eyebrow. Tyson saved the camp, I insisted. He pounded those bronze bulls. Otherwise, they would have burned down this whole place. Yes, Tantalus sighed. And what a pity that would have been. Dionysus snickered. <laughs> Leave us, Tantalus ordered. Will we decide this creature's fate? Tyson looked at me with fear in his one big eye, but I knew I couldn't disobey a direct order from the camp directors. Not openly, anyway. I'll be right over there, big guy, I promised. Don't worry, we're, we're going to find you a good place to sleep tonight. Tyson nodded. I believe you. You are my friend. Which made me feel a whole lot guiltier. I trudged over to the Poseidon table and slumped down onto the bench. A wood nymph brought me a plate of Olympian olive and pepperoni pizza, but I wasn't hungry. I'd been almost killed twice today. I'd managed to end my school year with a complete disaster. Camp Half-Blood was in serious trouble, and Chiron had told me not to do anything about it. I didn't feel very thankful, but I took my dinner, as was customary, up to the bronze brazier and scraped out part of it into the flames. Poseidon, I murmured, accept my offering. And send me some help while you're at it, I prayed silently. 
Please. The smoke from the burning pizza changed into something fragrant. The smell of a clean sea breeze with wildflowers mixed into it. But I had no idea if that meant my father was really listening. I went back to my seat. I didn't think things could get much worse, but then Tantalus had one of the satyrs blow the conch horn and get our attention for announcements. Yes, well, Tantalus said, once the talking had died down. Another fine meal, or so I'm told. As he spoke, he inched his hand toward his refilled dinner plate, as if maybe the food wouldn't notice what it was doing, but it did. It shot away down the table as soon as he got within six inches. And here on my first day of authority, he continued, I'd like to see what a present form of punishment it is to be here. Over the course of the summer, I hope to torture, uh, interact with each and every one of you children. You all look good enough to eat. Dionysus clapped politely, leading some half-hearted applause from the satyrs. Tyson was still standing at the head table looking uncomfortable, but every time he tried to scoot out of the limelight, Tantalus pulled him back in. And now some changes! Tantalus gave the campers a crooked smile. We are reinstituting the chariot races! Murmuring broke out at all the tables. Excitement, fear, disbelief. Now I know, Tantalus continued, raising his voice, that these races were discontinued some years ago due to uh, technical problems. Uh, three deaths and twenty-six mutilations, someone at the Apollo table called. Yes, yes, Tantalus said, but I know that you will all join me in welcoming the return of this camp tradition. Golden laurels will go to the winning charioteers each month. Teams may register in the morning. The first race will be held in three days' time. We will release you from most of your regular activities to prepare your chariots and choose your horses. And, oh, did I mention, the victorious team's cabin will have no chores for the month in which they win. An explosion of excited conversation. No KP for a whole month? No stable cleaning? Was he serious? Then the last person I expected to object did so. But, sir, Clarice said. She looked nervous, but she stood to speak from the Aries table. Some of the campers snickered when they saw the You Moo girl signing her back. What about patrol duty? I mean, if we drop everything and ready our chariots. Oh, the hero of the day, Tantalus exclaimed. Brave Clarice, who single-handedly bested the bronze bulls. Clarice blinked, and then blushed. Uh, I, I didn't. And modest, too, Tantalus grinned. Not to worry, my dear, this is a summer camp. We are here to enjoy ourselves, yes. But the tree, and now, Tantalus said, as several of Clarice's cabin mates pulled her back to her seat, before we proceed to the campfire and sing along, one slight housekeeping issue. Percy Jackson and Annabeth Chase have seen fit, for some reason, to bring this here. Tantalus waved a hand toward Tyson. 
uneasy murmuring spread among the campers. A lot of sideways looks at me. I wanted to kill Tantalus. Now, of course, he said, Cyclopes have a reputation for being bloodthirsty monsters with a very small brain capacity. Under normal circumstances, I would release this beast into the woods and have you hunt it with torches and pointed sticks. But who knows? Perhaps this Cyclops is not as horrible as most of its brethren. Until it proves worthy of destruction, we need a place to keep it. I've thought about the stables, but that would make the horses nervous. Hermes's cabin, possibly. Silence at the Hermes table. Travis and Connor Stoll developed a sudden interest in the tablecloth. I couldn't blame them. The Hermes cabin was always full to bursting. There was no way it could take in a six-foot-three cyclops. Oh, come now, Tantalus chided. The monster may be able to do some menial chores. Any suggestion as to where the beast should be kenneled? <gasps> Suddenly, everybody gasped. Tantalus scooted away from Tyson in surprise. All I could do was stare in disbelief at the brilliant green light that was about to change my life. A dazzling holographic image that had appeared over Tyson's head. With a sickening twist in my stomach, I remembered what Annabeth had said about Cyclopes. They're the children of nature spirits and gods. Well, one god in particular, usually. Swirling over Tyson was a glowing green trident. The same symbol that had appeared above me the day Poseidon had claimed me as his son. There was a moment of awed silence. Being claimed was a rare event. Some campers waited in vain for it their whole lives. When I'd been claimed by Poseidon last summer, everyone had reverently knelt, but now they followed Tantalus's lead, and Tantalus roared with laughter. <laughs> well, I think we know where to put the beast now. By the gods, I can see the family resemblance. Everybody laughed except Annabeth and a few of my other friends. Tyson didn't seem to notice. He was too mystified trying to swat the glowing trident that now faded over his head. He was too innocent to understand how much they were making fun of him. How cruel people were. But I got it. I had a new cabin mate. I had a monster for a half-brother. There we are, gang. <laughs> Dahlia, you can't. <laughs> Dahlia. <laughs> Not just any gods, but one god notably. Seems like Poseidon and nature spirits get along perhaps a bit too well. But at any rate, Percy does indeed have a new, I think, let's see, it would be half-brother, right? Um, has a new half-brother and a new member of the cabin, which, frankly, you know, I think if we remember back from book one, when Percy first got claimed by Poseidon, remember what happened to him? 
He, you know, he got to set his own bedtime. He got to decide when lights out were. He got to have a whole cabin to himself. He got to determine like when chores did or didn't need to be done all on his own. Didn't have to worry about people stealing his stuff. And he was miserable. Um, it's, it's like, it, it can be lonely to be sort of singled out. Um, and not only is he alone, but also he is singled out. Now we've got just the one of those two things, right? He'd been sing- he's been singled out once more. Brother of Tyson, the Cyclops. But at least he's not going to be alone anymore. And frankly, I think, I think for me, this would make a decent trade-off. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like all of these kids at the, at the, at the camp were like huge Percy Jackson fans to begin with, right? I think this wouldn't be a terrible trade-off. Nothing, there's no super cool sibling that Percy could show up with that would make people be like, oh yeah, you know, Clarice isn't going to turn around and be like, oh yeah, cool. Percy Jackson, all about it. Um, Unless, I guess, like, Poseidon and Ares were to have a child, that would be like the only thing, right? And look, this is Greek mythology, weirder things have happened, okay? Um... That would be the only thing that could, like, get people to like him more. So I don't really get much of the downside here. Uh, Now, we will see how much trouble Tyson causes. Because I think Tyson, I think we got a a solid sense of who Tyson is. Good heart. But, you know, we are, I I think we could probably predict maybe prone to some trouble here. Um, So we shall find out. But at the very least, like, he is owed this, right, as a person. And, you know, if we're talking about... um, um, uh, not just sort of uh, uh, a humanity-based thing, but if we're talking about an achievement-based uh, system, which I don't necessarily advocate, but for those people who do, like there are some certainly here at camp, um, Tyson was absolutely instrumental in keeping the camp safe. Those bulls were really going to torch the place. So, you know, let's not pretend like Tyson didn't earn his his uh, his room and board here, all right? This got me fired up. <laughs> it's it's so strange um, to read for both the good folks and the bad folks. You know, reading for uh, for Tantalus, like, I am simultaneously disgusted by Tantalus because I know Tantalus is going to be some real umbrage-tier trouble here. And we didn't even wait until, like, book four. We get some umbrage-tier trouble in book two, chapter five. Already with the umbrage trouble. I saw some comparisons to Filch, and I liked that quite a bit. I also saw, um, I believe it was Luke, who suggested um, when when we do need voices for these two brothers from the Hermes cabin, uh, Travis and Connor Stoll, I saw a comparison to the Weasley twins, and I think that would probably be a fun place for those two voices to make a reappearance, don't you? Uh, it seems appropriate, right? A couple of mischievous troublemakers. Uh, Sanders says, I wonder why this guy was chosen. And I think that is, Sander, I think that's an excellent Chatterbreak question for right now because I'm about to head into a quick break. I'm going to take five minutes and I will be right back. We're going to keep reading. Um, The question is, why did Poseidon claim Tyson? Remember, claiming is a thing that sort of happens at the gods, at the whim of the god in question, right? Percy Jackson has always been the son of Poseidon, but it was only during that one moment uh, in that ri- in that sort of riverbed after the attack of the Hellhound that Poseidon actually made the decision to claim Percy. Why in this moment did Poseidon suddenly claim Tyson? There we go, y'all. That's my question. Why did 
aside and just claim Tyson here. Um, I'm going to go take a quick five minute break and then we will be right back with another chapter. So I will see you all in five. There will be a um, there will be one up here on stream. And by the way, everyone, just a, a quick little tip. If you would like to know where that Tantalus voice came from, I have used that one once before. I used it in the Christmas Carol. That is the voice of Ebenezer Scrooge because in my mind, they look virtually identical. <laughs> I'll see you all in about five minutes. Adios, gang. Bye-bye. Thank you, Luke. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. It always feels a little weird to sort of pull the riptide um, out from under y'all when <laughs> we're in the middle of that. I really like that song. Um, that is from the same place that I find most of my music. Uh, it's called filmmusic.io. Um, it's pretty solid stuff. And we found an excellent uh, title sequence song for, uh, for the after there. Uh, unfortunately, that one has gotten claimed by uh, an independent company a few times on YouTube, so I haven't been able to monetize those, which is just... <clears throat> love it! Uh, that's all right. It's an eight-part series. We'll see how it does anyway. It's, it's designed as a test for other things. But I think the song that I'm most happy with... I was pretty happy with the, the Harry Potter one. That's right. It's uh, it is ingrained in my memory. You know, three years that'll do it to you. Three years every week, basically. But I think the one I'm most happy with is the one for The Hobbit that we do on Tuesdays. Uh, Tuesdays at noon, we have got The Hobbit, and I think that is my favorite one. That to me, I like that song so much that when I do eventually, eventually. You know what? For book fair, that might be a fun one. Maybe I'll do a stream with the first few chapters of Lord of the Rings during book fair. That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> Don't forget, head over to the Discord. If you are watching on YouTube, then those will be in the description. Now that we are, now that I've got my, I've got the first of my two vaccines, by the way, everybody. I'm excited about that. I got it on, let's see, it was Monday. I got the first, I got Moderna and I got the first of the two. I'm not going to recommend a specific company to go with, but y'all... Get, get your vaccine. Um, I've got my first one, and that means that hopefully you and I are going to be close to going back to stores. If I can get, like, two more of those lights, then maybe we could go without, and I'll just have this sort of weird campfire oasis of light here in the corner. I've got so many different projects, y'all. I have... I'm trying to decide if it's even appropriate to call it cosplay stuff. Um, I would love to show it to y'all. I'm going to take some pictures of it tonight, by the way, and put it in the Discord. I think it becomes cosplay when you are going for a specific character. And mine is the Hound from Game of Thrones. That is my understanding. Does anybody in chat want to disabuse me of that definition of cosplay? Anyone? Going once? Going twice? No, if it's not here right now, I'm right. I'm right, I guess. I guess I'm right. Yeah, so uh, I've got one of those, and then I actually have a D&D uh, character. Rose says... OMG, can we cosplay for book fair? Yes, absolutely. There will be a there will be a cosplay element to book fair for sure. Um, because I'm getting like I, I have a new DD character that I'm uh, I'm putting together. I'm playing a human cleric named Rove, um, which is short for Rovier. 
Dahlia says it's definitely a cosplay if you're playing a character from a series, show, book, movie, or game. And yeah, does your own D&D character count as a cosplay? There we go. Get into the deep dive of the questions here. I think uh, Mr. Aizawa, I think I would like to do a cosplay of him. Just uh, me, because my hair absolutely looks basically identical to his. So give me a big white scarf, black turtleneck, black slacks, and uh, some pouches around my waist, and I am good to go. <laughs> Bring me to Comic-Con. All right. All right. All right. Now, officially, we got to get back into this. Officially. All right. Now. Y'all. So Rollet says, I really think Poseidon claimed him to give Percy some help with protection since he knows Percy's going to try and find a way to cure the tree. Uh, at the heart, perhaps, Poseidon at the very least engaging a little bit with his with his offspring. Rose says, I think he claimed him basically to protect him because he knew Percy cared for him. Um, I, I think he won't act until he needs to intervene. Like if they accepted Tyson and placed him in, he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't have claimed him, just let him handle it. Let's see. I think that's a pretty good thought as well. And overall, I think it's very possible. Maybe we are seeing Poseidon finally take some sort of parental responsibility in some way. Flippin' Adventure says, maybe he claimed him because he knows Percy needs Tyson to keep him safe. And it's a great way to keep them together. Yeah, kind of encouraging, like, encouraging some uh, some solid team comp, as it were. Okay, that, were mo that was most of the big ones that I saw up there. Um, thank you. Uh, and now, with that, let's talk a very quick review. In our last two chapters, uh, we started with Percy arriving at camp. Um, it's a pretty quick chapter in which... The big headliner is the camp is under attack by these two enormous bronze bulls. And although the campers are kind of getting their their butts handed to them here, who is it that kind of saves the day? Well, it's Tyson. Turns out Tyson is not just a person that befriended Percy. Tyson actually is a cyclops. He's got one eye in the middle of his forehead. Uh, he is the offspring of a god and a nature spirit. And we found at the end of that chapter that Talia's tree has been poisoned. As we get into our second chapter for this evening, the chapter we just finished with, we find out that's not the only changes in the works here. The whole camp sort of seems like it's preparing for war. Um, people stockpiling weapons, people making sure to be ready. Um, and not only that, but Chiron has been fired. Chiron, the centaur, the camp director, just got fired for everything going on they it seems like there might be some some you know some suspicion that he might be involved with the poisoning of talia's tree but of course that is ridiculous we know that much nevertheless he is being sent away and there is a new camp counselor tantalus tantalus is uh, a figure from greek myth who uh was cursed basically after doing something real bad um to suffer eternally in uh, in um, uh, in the underworld, constantly being sort of standing in a lake and having a fruit tree above him, but anytime he goes for a drink, the the waves move away so he can't get any water, and anytime he goes to eat something from the tree, the wind blows the fruit away so he can't get to it. Seems like that has continued here up in the sort of mortal world. He still can't get anything to eat, but uh, overall, the tone of this chapter is... Things are dangerous and things are changing. Not only that, but Tyson is going to be treated pretty poorly here. I think we can see that much. At the very end, we finally find out, well, it's not just any god and a nature spirit. It's Poseidon and a nature spirit, usually. Um, and in this case, that turns out to be true. Poseidon claims Tyson as his son. And 
Percy finds out, well, all right, guess I'm not going to be solo in the old in the old Poseidon bunk this year. I've got a half brother. There you have it. With all of that said, everyone, thank you very, very much for watching. I hope that you will enjoy our final chapter for the evening. And I hope I can keep it together for said chapter. Chapter 6. Demon Pigeons Attack. The next few days were torture, just like Tantalus wanted. First, there was Tyson moving into Poseidon cabin, giggling to himself every 15 seconds and saying, <laughs> Percy is my brother, like he just won the lottery. Oh, Tyson, I'd say, it's not that simple. But there was no explaining it to him. He was in heaven. And me, as much as I liked the big guy, I couldn't help feeling embarrassed. Ashamed. There, I said it. My father, the all-powerful Poseidon, had gotten moony-eyed for some nature spirit, and Tyson had been the result. I mean, I'd read the myths about Cyclopes. I even remembered that they were often Poseidon's children. But I'd never really processed that this made them my family. Until I had Tyson living with me in the next bunk. And then there were the comments from the other campers. Suddenly I wasn't Percy Jackson, the cool guy who'd retrieved Zeus's lightning bolt last summer. Now I was Percy Jackson, the poor schmuck with the ugly monster for a brother. He's okay, he's not my he's not my real brother, I protested whenever Tyson wasn't around. He's he's more like a, a half brother with the monstrous side of the family, you know, like uh, half brother twice removed or something. Nobody bought it. I admit, I was angry at my dad. It felt like being his son was now a joke. Annabeth tried to make me feel better. She suggested we team up for a chariot race to take our minds off of our problems. Don't get me wrong, we both hated Tantalus and we were worried sick about camp, but we didn't really know what to do about it. Until we could come up with a brilliant plan to save Talia's tree, we figured we might as well go along with the races. After all, Annabeth's mom, Athena, had invented the chariot, and my dad had created horses. Together, well, we would own that track. One morning, Annabeth and I were sitting by the canoe lake, sketching chariot designs, when some jokers from Aphrodite's cabin walked by and asked me if I needed to borrow some eyeliner for my eye. Oh, sorry, eyes. As they walked away laughing, Annabeth grumbled. Just ignore them, Percy. It isn't your fault you've got a monster for a brother. He's not my brother, I snapped. And he's not a monster either. Annabeth raised her eyebrows. Hey, don't get mad at me. And technically he is a monster. Yeah, well, you gave him permission to enter the camp. Because it was the only way to save your life. I mean, I'm sorry, Percy, I didn't expect Poseidon to claim him. Cyclopes are the most deceitful, treacherous... He's not! What do you got against Cyclopes, anyway? Hennebeth's ears turned pink. I got the feeling there was something she wasn't telling me. Something bad. Just forget it, 
she said. Now, the axle for this chariot. You're treating him like he's this horrible thing, I said. He saved my life. Annabeth threw down her pencil and stood. Then maybe you should design a chariot with him. Or yeah, maybe I should. Fine. Fine. She stormed off and left me feeling even worse than before. The next couple of days, I tried to keep my mind off my problems. Selena Beauregard, one of the nicer girls from Aphrodite's cabin, gave me my first riding lesson on a Pegasus. She explained there was only one immortal winged horse named Pegasus, who had still wandered free somewhere over in the skies, but over the eons he'd sired a lot of children, none quite so fast or heroic, but all named after the first and greatest. Being the son of the sea god, I never really liked going into the air. My dad had this rivalry with Zeus, so I tried to stay out of the Lord of the Skies domain as much as possible. But riding a winged horse felt different. It didn't make me nearly as nervous as being in an airplane. Maybe that was because my dad had created horses out of sea foam, so the Pegasi were sort of neutral territory. I could understand their thoughts. I wasn't surprised when my Pegasus went galloping over the treetops or chased a flock of seagulls into a cloud. The problem was Tyson wanted to ride the, the chicken ponies. But the Pegasi got skittish whenever he approached. I told them telepathically that Tyson wouldn't hurt them, but they didn't seem to believe me. That made Tyson cry. The only person at camp who had no problem with Tyson was Beckendorf from the Hephaestus cabin. The blacksmith god had always worked with Cyclopes in his forges, so Beckendorf took Tyson down to the armory to teach him metalworking. He said he'd have Tyson crafting magic items like a master in no time. After lunch, I worked out in the arena with the Apollo's cabin. Swordplay had always been my strength. People said I was better than any camper in the last hundred years, except maybe Luke. People always compared me to Luke. I thrashed the Apollo guys easily. I should have been testing myself against the Ares and Athena cabins, since they were the best sword fighters, but I did not get along with Clarice and her siblings. And after my argument with Annabeth, I just didn't want to see her. I went to archery class, even though I was terrible at it. And it wasn't the same without Chiron teaching. In arts and crafts, I started a marble bust of Poseidon, but it looked like Sylvester Stallone, so I ditched it. I scaled the climbing wall in full lava and earthquake mode, and in the evenings I did border patrol. Even though Tantalus had insisted we forget trying to protect the camp, some of the campers had quietly kept it up, working out a schedule during our free times. I sat at the top of Camp Half-Blood and watched the dryads come and go, singing to the dying pine tree. Satyrs had brought their reed pipes and played nature magic songs, and for a while... The pine needles seemed to get fuller. The flowers on the hill smelled a little sweeter, and the grass looked greener. But as soon as the music stopped, the sickness crept back into the air. The whole hill seemed to be infected, dying from the poison that had sunk into the tree's roots. The longer I sat there, the angrier I got. 
Luke had done this. I remembered his sly smile, the dragon claw scar across his face. He'd pretended to be my friend, and the whole time he'd been Kronos's number one servant. I opened the palm of my hand. The scar Luke had given me last summer was fading, but I could still see it. A white asterisk-shaped wound where his pit scorpion had stung me. I thought about what Luke had told me before he tried to kill me. Goodbye, Percy. There's a new golden age coming. You won't be a part of it. At night, I had more dreams of Grover. Sometimes I heard just snatches of his voice. Once I heard him say, It's here. Another time, He likes sheep. I thought about telling Annabeth about my dreams, but I would have felt stupid. I mean, he likes sheep? She would have thought I was crazy. The night before the race, Tyson and I finished our chariot. It was wicked cool. Tyson had made the metal parts in the armory forges. I'd sanded the wood and put the carriage together. It was blue and white, with wave designs on the side and a trident painted onto the front. After all that work, it only seemed fair Tyson would ride shotgun with me, though I knew the horses wouldn't like it, and Tyson's extra weight would slow us down. As we were turning in for bed, Tyson said, Mm. Are you mad? I realized I'd been scowling. No, I'm not mad. He lay down in his bunk and was quiet in the dark. His body was way too long for his bed. When he pulled up the covers, his feet stuck out from the bottom. Mm. I... I'm a monster. Don't say that. It is okay. Hmm. I will be a good monster. Then you will not have to be mad. Hmm. I didn't know what to say. I stared at the ceiling and felt like I was dying slowly, right along with Talia's tree. It's just, I never had a half-brother before. I tried to keep my voice from cracking. It's really, it's different for me. And I'm worried about the camp. And another friend of mine, Grover, he might be in trouble. I keep feeling like I should be doing something to help, but I don't know what. Tyson said nothing. I'm sorry, I told him. It's not your fault. I'm mad at Poseidon. I feel like he's trying to embarrass me. Like he's trying to compare us or something. I don't understand why. I heard a deep rumbling sound. Tyson was snoring. I sighed. Oh. Good night, big guy. 
and I closed my eyes too. In my dream, Grover was wearing a wedding dress. It didn't fit him very well. The gown was too long and the hem was caked with dried mud. The neckline kept falling off his shoulders. A tattered veil covered his face. He was standing in a dank cave lit only by torches. There was a cot in one corner and an old-fashioned loom in the other, a length of white cloth half-woven on the frame. And he was staring right at me, like I was a TV program he'd been waiting for. Oh, thank the gods, he yelped. Can you hear me? My dream self was slow to respond. I was still looking around, taking in the stalactite ceiling, the stench of sheep and goats, and growling and grumbling and bleeding sounds that seemed to echo from behind a refrigerator-sized boulder which was blocking the room's only exit, as if there were a much larger cavern beyond it. Percy, Grover said, please, I don't have the strength to project any better. You have to hear me. I can hear you, I said. Grover, what's going on? From behind the boulder, a monstrous voice yelled, Honey pie, are you done yet? Grover flinched. He called out in falsetto, Not quite, dearest, um... A few more days. Meh, hasn't it been two weeks yet? No, dearest, uh, just five days. That leaves twelve more to go. The monster was silent, maybe trying to do math. He must have been worse at arithmetic than I was because he said, Hmm, all right, but hurry. I want to see under the veil. <laughs> Grover turned back to me. You have got to help me. There's no time I'm stuck in this cave on an island in the sea. What? Where? I don't know exactly. I went to Florida and I turned left. What? How did you... It's a trap, Grover said. It's the reason that no satyr has ever returned from this quest. He's a shepherd, Percy, and he has it. It's nature magic. It's so powerful it smells just like the great god Pan. The satyrs have been coming here thinking that they've found Pan and they get trapped and eaten by Polyphemus. Well, hold on. Polyphemus? The Cyclops? Grover said, exasperated. I almost got away. Almost made it all the way to St. Augustine. But he followed you, I said. I remembered my first dream. And he trapped you in a bridal boutique. That's right, Grover said. My first empathy link must have worked then. Look, this bridal dress is the only thing keeping me alive. He thinks that I smell good, but I told him I was just um, scented with goat perfume. Thank goodness he can't see very well. His eye is still half blind from the last time he tried to catch someone and they poked it out. But soon he'll realize what I am. He's only giving me two weeks to finish the bridal train and he's getting impatient. 
Whoa, 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 wait a minute. This Cyclops thinks that you're... Yes, Grover wailed. He thinks I'm a lady Cyclops and he wants to marry me. Under different circumstances, I might have burst out laughing. But Grover's voice was deadly serious. He was shaking with fear. I'm gonna come rescue you, I promised. Where are you? The Sea of Monsters, of course. Sea of, sea of what? I told you I don't know exactly where. And look, Percy, um, I'm, I'm really sorry about this, but this empathy link, I had no choice. Our emotions are connected now. If I die... Oh, don't tell me. I'll die too. Well, uh, perhaps not. You might live in... A vegetative state for years, but it would be a lot better if you got me out of here alive. Honey pie! The monster bellowed. Dinner time! Yummy, yummy sheep meat! Grover whimpered. I have to go. Hurry! Wait, you said it was here. What? But Grover's voice was already growing fainter. Sweet dreams, don't let me die. The dream faded, and I woke with a start. It was early morning. Tyson was staring down at me, his one big brown eye full of concern. Are you okay? <laughs> his voice sent a chill down my back because he sounded almost exactly like the monster I'd heard in my dream. The morning of the race was hot and humid. Fog lay low on the ground like sauna steam. Millions of birds were roosting in the trees. Fat, gray, and white pigeons, except they didn't coo like regular pigeons. They made this annoying, metallic screeching sound that reminded me of submarine radar. The racetrack had been built on a grassy field between the archery range and the woods. Hephaestus's cabin had used the bronze bulls, which were completely tame since they'd had their heads smashed in, to plow an oval track in a matter of minutes. There were rows of stone steps for the spectators. Tantalus, the satyrs, a few dryads, and all of the campers who weren't participating. Mr. D didn't show. He never got up before ten o'clock. Right, Tantalus announced before the teams began to assemble. The naiad had brought him a big platter of pastries, and as Tantalus spoke, his right hand chased a chocolate eclair across the judge's table. You all know the rules. A quarter-mile track, twice around to win. Two horses per chariot. Each team will consist of a driver and a fighter. Weapons are allowed. Dirty tricks are expected. But try not to kill anybody. Tantalus smiled like we were all naughty children. Any killing will result in harsh punishment. No s'mores at the campfire for a week. Now ready your chariots. 
Beckendorf led the Hephaestus team onto the track. They had a sweet ride made of bronze and iron. Even the horses, which were magical automatons like the Colchis bulls, I had no doubt that their chariot had all kinds of mechanical traps and more fancy options than a fully loaded Maserati. The Ares chariot was blood red and pulled by two grisly horse skeletons. Clarice climbed on board with a batch of javelins, spiked balls, caltrops, and a bunch of other nasty toys. Apollo's chariot was trim, graceful, and completely gold, pulled by two beautiful palominos. Their fighter was armed with a bow, though he had promised not to shoot regular pointed arrows at the opposing drivers. Hermes's chariot was green, and kind of old-looking, as if it hadn't been out of the garage in years. It didn't look like anything special, but it was manned by the Stoll brothers, and I shuddered to think what dirty tricks they'd schemed up. That left two chariots, one driven by Annabeth and the other by me. Before the race began, I tried to approach Annabeth and tell her about my dream. She perked up when I mentioned Grover, but when I told her what he'd said, she seemed to get distant again. Suspicious. You're trying to distract me, she decided. What? No, I'm not. Oh, right, like Grover would just happen to stumble across the one thing that could save the camp. What do you What do you mean? She rolled her eyes. Go back to your chariot, Percy. I'm not making this up. He was in trouble. Annabeth. She hesitated. I could tell she was trying to decide whether or not to trust me. Despite our occasional fights, we'd been through a lot together and I knew she would never want anything bad to happen to Grover. Percy, an empathy link is so hard to do. I mean, it's more likely you were really dreaming. The Oracle, I said. We could consult the Oracle. Annabeth frowned. Last summer, before my quest, I'd visited the strange spirit that lived in the big house attic, and it had given me a prophecy that came true in ways I had never expected. The experience had freaked me out for months. Annabeth knew I'd never suggest going back there if I wasn't completely serious. Before she could answer, the cock horn sounded. Charioteers, Tantalus called, to your mark. We'll talk later, Annabeth told me, after I win. As I was walking back to my own chariot, I noticed how many more pigeons were in the trees now, screeching like crazy, making the whole forest rustle. Nobody else seemed to pay them much attention, but they made me nervous. Their beaks glinted strangely. Their eyes seemed shinier than regular birds. Tyson was having trouble getting our horses under control. I had to talk to them a good long time before they would settle down. He's a monster, Lord, they complained to me. He's a son of Poseidon, I told them. He's like, he's, uh, he's just like me. No, they insisted. Monster, horse eater, not trusted. I'll give you a sugar cube at the end of the race, I said. Sugar cubes? Very big sugar cubes. And apples. Did I mention the apples? Finally, they agreed to let me harness them. Now, if you've never seen a Greek chariot, it's built for speed. 
not safety or comfort. It's basically a wooden basket, open at the back, mounted on an axle between two wheels. The driver stands up the whole time, and you can feel every bump in the road. The carriage is made of such light wood that if you wiped out while making a hairpin turn at either side of the track, you'll probably tip over and crush both the chariot and yourself. It's an even better rush than skateboarding. I took the reins and maneuvered the chariot to the starting line. I gave Tyson a ten-foot pole and told him that his job was to push the other chariots away if they got too close, and deflect anything that they might try to throw at us. Hmm. Hmm. No hitting ponies with the stick, he insisted. No, I agreed. Or people either, if, if you can help it. We're trying to run a clean race. Just keep the distractions away and let me concentrate on driving. Hmm. We will win, he beamed. We are so gonna lose, I thought to myself, but I had to try. I wanted to show the others. Well, I wasn't sure what exactly. That Tyson wasn't such a bad guy, that I wasn't ashamed of being seen with him in public. Maybe that they hadn't hurt me with all their jokes and name-calling. As the chariots lined up, more shiny-eyed pigeons gathered in the woods. They were screeching so loudly the campers in the stands were starting to take notice, glancing nervously at the trees, which shivered under the weight of the birds. Tantalus didn't look concerned, but he did have to speak up to be heard over the noise. Charioteers, he shouted, attend your mark. He waved his hand, and the starting signal dropped. The chariots roared to life, hooves thundered against the dirt, the crowd cheered. Almost immediately there was a nasty, loud crack. I looked back in time to see the Apollo chariot flip over. The Hermes chariot had rammed into it. Maybe by mistake, maybe not. The riders were thrown free, but their panicked horses dragged the golden chariot diagonally across the track. The Hermes team, Travis and Connor Stoll, were laughing at their good luck, but not for long. The Apollo horses crashed into theirs, and Hermes' chariot flipped too, leaving a pile of broken wood and four rearing horses in the dust. Two chariots down in the first twenty feet. I loved this sport. I turned my attention to the front. We were making good time, pulling ahead of Ares, but Annabeth's chariot was way out ahead of us. She was already making her turn around the first post, her javelin man grinning and waving at us, shouting, Ha <laughs> ha see ya! The Hephaestus chariot was starting to gain on us, too. Beckendorf pressed a button, and a panel slid open on the side of his chariot. Sorry, Percy, he yelled. Three sets of balls and chains shot straight out towards our wheels. They would have wrecked us completely if Tyson hadn't whacked them aside with a quick swipe of his pole. He gave the Hephaestus chariot a good shove and sent them skittering sideways while we pulled ahead. Oh, whoa, nice work, Tyson, I yelled. Birds, he cried. What? We were whipping along so fast it was hard to hear or see anything, but Tyson pointed toward the woods, and I saw what he was worried about. The pigeons had risen from the trees. They were spiraling like a huge tornado heading toward the track. No big deal, I told myself. They're just pigeons. I tried to concentrate on the race. 
We made our first turn, the wheels creaking underneath us, the chariot threatening to tip, but we were now only ten feet behind Annabeth. Oh, if I could just get a little closer, Tyson could use this pole. Annabeth's fighter wasn't smiling now. He pulled the javelin from his collection and took aim at me. He was about to throw when we heard the screaming. Pigeons were swarming. Thousands of them dive-bombing the spectators in the stands, attacking the other chariots. Beckendorf was mobbed. His fighter tried to bat the birds away, but he couldn't see anything. The chariot veered off course and plowed through the strawberry fields, the mechanical horses steaming. In the Ares chariot, Clarice barked an order to her fighter, who quickly threw a screen of camouflage netting over their basket. The birds swarmed around it, pecking and clawing at the fighter's hands as he tried to hold up the net, but Clarice just gritted her teeth and kept driving. Her skeletal horse seemed immune to the distraction. The pigeons pecked uselessly at the empty eye sockets and flew through the rib cages, but the stallions kept right on running. The spectators weren't so lucky. The birds were slashing at any bit of exposed flesh, driving everyone into a panic. Now that the birds were closer, it was clear they weren't normal pigeons. Their eyes were beady and evil-looking. Their beaks were made of bronze, and judging from the yelps of the campers, they must have been razor-sharp. Stymphalian birds, Annabeth yelled. She slowed down and pulled her chariot alongside mine. They'll strip everything to bones if we don't drive them away. Tyson, I said, we're turning around. Going the wrong way? Hmm, he asked. Always, I grumbled, but I steered the chariot toward the stands. Annabeth rode right next to me. She shouted, Heroes! To arms! But I wasn't sure anyone could hear over the screeching of the birds and the general chaos. I held my reins in one hand and managed to draw Riptide as a wave of birds dived at my face, their metal beaks snapping. I slashed them out of the air and they exploded into dust and feathers, but there were still millions of them left. One nailed me in the back end and I almost jumped straight out of the chariot. Annabeth wasn't having much better luck. The closer we got to the stands, the thicker the cloud of birds became. Some of the spectators were trying to fight back. The Athena campers were calling for shields. The archers from Apollo's cabin brought out their bows and arrows, ready to slay the menace, but with so many campers mixed in with the birds, it wasn't safe to shoot. There's too many, I yelled to Annabeth. How do you get rid of them? She stabbed at the pigeon with her knife. Hercules used noise. Brass bells, he scared them away with the most horrible sound that he could. Her eyes got wide. Percy, Chiron's collection. I understood instantly. You think that's gonna work? She handed her fighter the reins and leapt out from her chariot into mine like it was the easiest thing in the world. Get to the big house, it's our only chance. Clarice had just pulled across the finish line, completely unopposed, and seemed to notice for the first time... How serious the bird problem was. When she saw us driving away, she yelled, You're running! The fight's here, cowards! She drew her sword and charged for the stands. I urged our horses into a gallop. The chariot rumbled through the strawberry fields, across the volleyball pit, and lurched to a halt in front of the big house. Annabeth and I ran inside, tearing down the hallway to Chiron's apartment. His boombox was still on the nightstand. So were his favorite CDs. I grabbed the most repulsive one I could find. Annabeth snatched the boombox, and together we ran back outside. Down at the track, the chariots were in flames. 
Wounded campers ran in every direction, with birds shredding their clothes and pulling out their hair while Tantalus chased breakfast pastries around the stands, every once in a while yelling, Everything's under control! Not to worry! We pulled up to the finish line. Annabeth got the boombox ready. I prayed the batteries weren't dead. I pressed play and started up Chiron's favorite. The all-time greatest hits of Dean Martin. Suddenly, the air was filled with violins and a bunch of guys moaning in Italian. Ain't that a kick in the head? Like the sailor said, quote, Ain't that a hole in the boat? The demon pigeons went nuts. They started flying in circles, running into each other like they wanted to bash their own brains out. Then they abandoned the track altogether and flew skyward in a huge, dark wave. Now, shouted Annabeth, archers! With clear targets, Apollo's archers had flawless aim. Most of them could knock five or six arrows at once. Within minutes, the ground was littered with dead, bronze-beaked pigeons, and the survivors were a distant trail of smoke on the horizon. The camp was saved. But the wreckage wasn't pretty. Most of the chariots had been completely destroyed. Almost everyone was wounded, bleeding from multiple bird packs. The kids from Aphrodite's cabin were screaming because their hairdos had been ruined and their clothes pooped on. Bravo! Tantalus said, but he wasn't looking at me or Annabeth. We've got our first winner! He walked to the finish line and awarded the golden laurels for the race to a stunned-looking Clarice. Then he turned and smiled at me. And now to punish the troublemakers who disrupted this race. And that... That is the end of our chapter. Yes, Sander, indeed, that was English, but I can tell you pretty confidently that that is one of my least favorite Dean Martin hits. I cannot stand that song. I worked at a, I have worked at a couple of Italian restaurants. Um, if one of them was, if they can even be called that, uh, one of them, of course, being the Olive Garden, which I think we can all agree, homies, that ain't Italian. <laughs> oh man, that's Italian like I'm German. Or like I'm English. Like, it ain't, though. It ain't, though, is the thing. Um, but at uh, at the second of these places, which was a local place, and thereby I will not be giving you the, the name of the thing, um, uh, we, we had the sort of the requisite playlist of um, basically like sort of like jazz crooner standards. Um, I have a couple of songs from there that I do not mind at all. As a matter of fact, I really enjoy like, uh, you know, Michael Bublé. I can listen to plenty of Frank Sinatra, but that song, that song, I can't stand it. I can't stand it. There were, there were many songs from that playlist that got to me to the point where I don't want to hear them anymore, but that song I hate. I got a little joker there for a second, didn't I? Now that song, that song I absolutely hate. <laughs> I can't stand it. Cannot do it. Ugh, disgusting. <laughs> Just garlic and carbs are so delicious. 
I know, I know. Everyone's got their their OG loyalties. Mine, mine. Look, mine was. It was like it was the most toxic work environment I've ever been in. Um, I'm sure it was not that way everywhere, but um, yeah, that that Olive Garden I worked in. That was the pits, the pits of Tartarus, right there. <laughs> the the Olive Garden right off the highway. Um, not great. Sparkle Lovegood says she's Sam. I thought you were a reasonable guy. I am. I am. I'm. I can be a reasonable guy, but Sparkle, no. <laughs> ah, yes, Memnite remembers the <laughs> remembers my my service time snackaroonie. Uh, yeah, I definitely would. You could go over. You could go to the little like plastic woven basket next to the register. You could sneak, sneak, sneak on over there. You duck down a little bit, get a handful of those sweet, sweet Andy's chocolate mints, slide them in your apron pocket, and then um, I devised a. <laughs> you 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 get good at dumb stuff working at menial jobs, and uh, at that particular one, I became a real sleight of hand artist to the point where at no point would the would the Andy's mint actually appear anywhere visibly. It would invisibly go from the basket into my pouch, get unwrapped, and my pouch like I'm a kangaroo. It's it's me, the Olive Garden kangaroo. Uh, it, I, I hear that's a mascot they're testing out. Uh, no, it could get all the way in there and then get unwrapped and then end up in my mouth, totally, totally imperceptibly. There we go. Now, everybody. We're going to talk about this chapter right now. Um, before we do that, just for anyone who is still hanging in there, I want to tell you all, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. I stream Tuesdays through Thursdays on a normal week. Of course, I'll, I'm going to throw it in one more time. Don't forget the last week of September. That's not the last full week. It is the 26th through October 2nd, the last week of September. Book fair. Book fair. It's going to be a full-on sidecar party. I've taken the week off of work. I've I've told my family, don't come visit me. That's going to be a week of streaming. We're going to be here. We're going to be playing games. We're going to have a great time. Um, we're going to do all sorts of stuff. And uh, like I mentioned earlier on, I think it would probably be fun to read the first few chapters of uh, Lord of the Rings there as well. I plan to do a lot of streaming during that week. Uh, so get excited. Get hype. Um that is, let's see, that's that. What else do we need to talk about? Of course, we have got our tradition tonight, all right? We've got our bad beans tradition. We're going to be heading over there in just a moment. Um, but before then, I definitely want to talk to y'all. I want to talk to y'all about this book because that's one of the reasons I do this. It's not just to read to y'all. There's a there's a difference between this and an audiobook, and I want to keep it that way. If you want to listen to an audiobook, you should go get the audiobook. This is something different, all right? This is where I want to talk about some of the characters, some of the themes. And for right now, I think let's talk about our character, Percy. Right? I think we should talk about Percy and his growth here. Okay? We have, we've seen, and, and this ties into our themes somewhat, right? Let's, let's remember, and part of this is sort of style, but I think overall, let's just keep this connected to the characters because that's the way that I really like to approach stories in general um, the characters and how they grow this idea of experiencing this entire story through Percy's perspective so part of that is an element of perspective but I'm I'm more talking about how it relates to care the 
character development of Percy Jackson himself. What's the big conflict we've got for Percy so far at the beginning of this book? We've read six chapters. What seems to be the big, the big struggle for him right now? And I would say in my head, there may be two. I think there are two, two headliners for me. The first, and I'm doing these in sort of order of appearance, the first would be Tyson. His situation here with Tyson has really changed sort of the meaning of being claimed by Poseidon. This is one of those moments where it's important to remember that we are seeing this from the perspective of a kid and not from a sort of like third person objective perspective, right? This is not the... This is not the third-person perspective of looking at the world and saying this is how it is and sometimes this is how it should be. This is from Percy's perspective. He is interacting with Tyson and so every experience that we as the audience have with Tyson is through Percy's eyes. And what is Percy experiencing with all of this? It's kind of shame. He's ashamed. Again, I want to emphasize I'm not, I'm, we're not taking a look at this to say that this is the right way to feel, simply that it's important to note that when we have a feeling about Tyson, it's through the eyes of Percy Jackson. This is in contrast to something like The Hobbit, where there's this, there's this very present narrator, this sort of third person, um, semi-existent character that we just sort of like experience the whole world through, and they're, they're not attached to any one person exclusively um this is different from harry potter where we're so we follow harry but we also see the world more objectively this series is straight through the eyes of percy and this shame that percy's feeling is one of the two big things that he's struggling with the other one i would say is his feelings about grover the plight that Grover is in, not knowing whether or not to go and, you know, find Grover. As of this dream that he's had, it seems like, yeah, okay, it's probably time to go find Grover. Van Saves Lies says, as a kid, you're going to feel less important or unique, even if he likes Tyson, having another one claim him so soon. Having another, having, having another person get claimed so soon. Yes. Yes. Van Saves Lives, absolutely. When you are, when you are chosen... Everyone wants to feel chosen, right? I think we can agree with that. It goes back to, it's, it's, it's one of the sort of subcategories of everyone wants to feel important. That is basically a universal truth. Every person wants to feel important. And one of the big ways in which people can feel important is to be chosen. This is true romantically. This is true uh, in friendship. This is true in mentor or parental relationships. This is true in recognition of, of merit or talent. People want to feel like they have been chosen. And the more exclusive that is, it's not right, but the more exclusive that is, the better it kind of feels. It feels better when you are one of the only people who got chosen. And to, to be the special one didn't feel great for Percy. You know, he didn't like sort of being singled out here at camp, but there was something important about him. He was the son of Poseidon. Now he's a son of Poseidon. And not only that, but as Rose is saying here, everyone is telling him Tyson is a monster. So it's not just that Percy's not the only one who got chosen. It's also that he is now on equal footing with 
a person who everyone seems to really hate or at the very least have absolutely no respect for. And I'm talking about respect as in like human decent respect, not respect for authority. Denisha says, it's sad, but I think Percy would really have liked having Tyson as his brother and in his cabin if there wasn't the stigma of him being a Cyclops. It seems like it, right? And I think this is one of those important times where this is, and this is part of the importance of this genre. I've said it before. I will defend this genre. Um, there are plenty of folks who have said that, oh yeah, young adult literature, like it's just kind of like, it's it's hacky or it's um, it's it's not valuable literature. I would absolutely argue against that and say that it is covering in depth themes and characters and character stories related specifically to the things that young people experience. And this sense of this this you know Percy has not grown, he has not been he's not matured enough to know that his sense of value. And for that matter, Tyson's sense of value, Tyson's actual value, is not determined by what other people think of them. This is something that, that young people really struggle with. A lot, right? And I don't and for some people, that doesn't go away. This is an issue that can persist throughout life um, for, for some folks. And I am I feel very fortunate that I came out of it, but it was a difficult struggle for me to go from to go from basing my understanding of people's value on other people's impression of that person. And sometimes that person was me. Breaking out of that mindset of determining my own value based on what people think of me, determining the value of of my friends based on what people thought of them. These are the important things that we can track with this character, and I want you to keep an eye on this. How does Percy continue to react? We're, we are, of course, we, you know, I, I said there were the two big concerns of Percy Jackson right now. One is Grover, the other one is Tyson. The Grover issue, we're going to be coming back to it. We know we're headed back in that direction. We know that Percy is impulsive enough and he is driven enough. He is going to go find Grover. We know this. But the question... The one that I want you all to track moving forward is Tyson. Does Percy grow from this in his impressions of other people? Do we Are we going to see some growth from Percy here? And if we do, how? How does Percy grow? That's what I want you all to track. And... I want to tell you all, I very much appreciate you being here. Uh, it has been wonderful to have you all here. I hope you will, you will check out Critical Role and that you will enjoy it because I would love to do more things like this. I'm dedicating Wednesdays to tabletop RPGs, and this is one of the things I would love to do. Everyone, go ahead and jump aboard. We're going to raid over there. And for all of you who have joined me tonight, I will see you all next week. Don't forget, Book Fair, last week of September. Adios. <laughs>